everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael, and I'm here with Andre. And on today's episode, we continue journeying through 2 Corinthians, and today we'll be looking at chapter 6. We hope you enjoy the conversation. What's up, everybody? This is Andre here, and uh, I'm actually back in Dallas, but Michael is not. He's still in Oklahoma. And interestingly enough, uh, one of our buddies and I are going to go up to Oklahoma and, and visit him. Let's go! Uh, and hang out with... Uh, some of our uh, friends up there and uh, hopefully just have a good time and, and uh, distract Michael before his finals. But luckily I'm done and I kind of just need a break and, and want to go, go see uh, him before heading down to Houston again. Cause I probably won't get to see him much this summer, but uh, excited for that. Yeah, man, I can't wait. I know to some people uh, distracting me from finals might sound bad, but I promise the grades are okay. And by the time Andre and our friend get here, uh, I'll only have one class left, so I'm pumped for that, and uh, it should be a really good time. And we get to do some podcast work while Andre's here, which is a big switch up from all these Zoom calls we're having. Yeah, it's kind of weird being back in Dallas and, and you not being here. Uh, the recording situation at my house is not optimal, and we normally record uh, at yours. But another thing that's not optimal is came home, was wanting to watch the Mavericks. Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, my my love for the Mavericks on the podcast before. <laughs> And recently there's been a switch from like all those like Fox sports uh, stations, like Fox sports, Southwest Fox sports, Southeast or whatever uh, to Bally sports. And for some reason frontier and Bally have like some kind of fight in the Southwest region. And you have to have like uh, AT&T TV to watch them. So you can't even watch them. And then to make matters worse, Luca, <laughs> one of the star players from the Mavericks kicked someone in the groin and now he's just rejected <laughs> and suspended oh for the next game right before playoff time. So that's not great. So kind of upset about that and excited to have a distraction uh, and uh, get to talk about life and, and just prepare for the podcast with Mike. And now we're getting to record for the podcast should be really fun. So excited for that and uh, hope all the studying is going well for you, man. It is. It is. I actually just finished up like five hours of uh, finishing up a Judaism paper. So pretty pumped to be done with that. And no, nobody is converting, but just enjoying this this class on Judaism. Uh, however, today at lunch, uh, our church group was at Torchies, and we were talking about the best basketball players. And I was making my LeBron over Jordan case, which Andre is so so on at this point, maybe in the in the future, uh, as we've talked about before. But Luca got raving reviews, but um, one of my buddies who was sitting next to me was talking about how uh, Steph is a more dynamic and interesting and more fun player to watch than LeBron, which uh, I had a big problem with. What do you think about that? More fun, I would say, is maybe accurate. You know, long range, 30 foot, basically jumpers at this point. Uh, I guess we could call them 35 foot jumpers, uh, (laughs) not three pointers, but I think Steph is definitely fun to watch. I think Luke is fun to watch for me, obviously, but there's a lot of players that are fun to watch. LeBron is more of a methodical, uh, slow grind kind of guy. Uh, I don't know if it's fun. It, it's it's fun to see how he dominates, but I don't know. I guess there's an argument to be made there, but um, yeah, that's kind of what I think, I guess. Who's the most Who's the most overrated player in the NBA? Uh, this season, Anthony Davis for sure supposed to be a top five player, and he was bad before the well, injury. And he's hasn't he been out now. before? Hasn't he been out for most of the year? No, he was bad before the injury, and he's even worse now. They're like they're doing better without him than they are doing with him right now. Is and Zion is Zion overrated? No, he's not. He's good. Yeah, he's good. Who's the most? Uh, who's the most underrated player in the NBA? 
We could not come to a conclusion on this. Most underrated player. I think it's honestly Chris Paul. I'll take that. I like Chris Paul a lot. People think he's washed, but thinking to what he did in 2017 with the Rockets, and basically if he wasn't injured, I think they would have won a championship that year. Then seeing how good OKC was and the steep drop-off we saw from them, and now Phoenix is basically a one or two seed, depending on the day. I think he is potentially a very, very valuable player. Not the most valuable, but he's a very valuable player. Uh, Doesn't get enough credit. A lot of people think he's just old and not that good anymore, and he's gaining some more respect this year, but I think that he's potentially underrated. I like that pick. I like Chris Paul, but I think some listeners may not even know who Chris Paul is, which is unfortunate, by the way, but some may not know who it is. So uh, maybe we should dive into first, sorry, not first Corinthians, second Corinthians. Yeah, our listeners will agree that Paul is definitely not underrated and uh, potentially uh, up there in GOAT status. Maybe we should just uh, transition over to <laughs> to Paul and, and jump into chapter six. That sounds good, man. So just as a brief recap of last week, we talked about chapter five and um, not just chapter five, but we zoomed in, focused more of our time on chapter five verses 11 through 21. Think of verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, how we've been given this message of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. We implore, or uh, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And so that's really what we spent time looking at last week. And as we get into chapter six, he continues that same theme that working together with him, we then we appeal to you. So remember, appeal is the same word that's in, I think, verse 20 of chapter five. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And now he's saying we appeal to you not to receive the, the grace of God in vain. And I said, this points to how our evangelism should be. It says in verse 11 of the last chapter, we persuade others. Now here it says appeal, verse 20, implore, verse 20. And now again in chapter six, verse one, we have, we appeal you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so Paul's all right here about reconciliation. And so even to sum up chapter six, as it unfolds in chapter five, point in chapter six is you can't have your allegiance to other things. You need to receive God's grace, be reconciled to Christ. And as a result, you need to be reconciled to Paul and his ministry as well. And so that's how I'd kind of, I'd kick off after actually chapter six, as I just did, looking back at chapter five, a lot of commentators see uh, the first couple verses of chapter six, uh, being in continuity with the end of chapter five. So that's what I, that's where I'd start. I think that's really good. man. And I think that, you know, this chapter, uh, definitely not uh, as much to go through, at least from, you know, what Michael and I've been talking to in preparation. Um, Definitely, you know, from verse four to verse uh, 10 or so um, is kind of just a little bit of a list of, of things that, you know, we'll get into a little bit, but I guess like an interesting way to, to think about this chapter or at least an interesting question to kind of get us kicked off that I kind of just thought of, but is this uh, chapter, Second Corinthians chapter six, is this really a, a kind of just a, a little bit of a roast session by Paul uh, to the church uh, at Corinth or, you know, how does this really apply to us and, and how do these kind of teachings apply to us um, as, as we read and as we, we study what, what Paul is saying here? So I don't think chapter six is a roast session as cool as that might be in our minds. I do think chapter six. So it's actually interesting is a lot of people who are involved in what we might say is biblical criticism, but a lot of people think not a lot in terms of like conservative evangelical scholarship, but a lot of people do think that six verse 14 through seven one. So chapter six, verse 14 
through chapter seven, verse one is actually either a not written by Paul or B was written by Paul at a different time and was like inserted here or something of that sort. And so, uh, chap from verse 14 on, it's not a row session, but it's definitely more critical and more forceful. Whereas I don't, I don't really think that the, the first part of the chapter is, is at all. I think he's more speaking of his ministry and the reconciliation that can result of it and what he's doing on behalf of the Corinthian church and how they're to receive him in fellowship, to, to reintegrate him in fellowship. This thing that's been causing him so much anguish and tears that we've talked about in previous episodes. And so to, to start off this appeal in verse two, to say, don't receive God's grace in vain. In verse two, he quotes Isaiah 49, eight. And so this is just a little bit on Isaiah. This is part of the Isaiah of Isaiah's prophecy, where he's talking about this servant of the Lord from chapters 40 to 55, who's going to usher in a new Exodus. So in the paradigm of Israel coming out of Egypt, there's going to be a new Exodus of salvation for the people of God. And so this verse in Isaiah 49 was a promise to Israel, but we see Paul's consistency with his own words from chapter one. Uh, all promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. And so this promise of salvation is given to the people of God here. And so the salvation that's coming through this servant, obviously Jesus, to the ends of the earth came through being a light to the nations, which is also in Isaiah 49. And this is also a related theme here because in chapter five, they're talking about being ambassadors for Christ. They're being a light to the nations with the gospel. And so this verse, just to sum up here, is God answering prayer and acting on behalf of their salvation. He's saying God is doing what Isaiah was talking about. Don't receive that in vain. Be reconciled to God and come under what God is actually up to and what he is calling you to. Sorry for that long spiel, but when Paul makes an explicit quote of Isaiah or the Old Testament, it's something to pay attention to. That was a that was a good but long answer, as you said. Uh, sometimes I, you know, try to summarize those long answers, but this time, you know, I'm not I'm not really going to go for for the summer here. But instead, dang man, I uh, like to think of you as the one who <laughs> breaks down what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking along the way, and I think I'm going to uh, skip that this time. Um, but, you know, I, I want to focus on, you know, how um, Paul makes the appeal uh, for them not to receive the grace of God in vain and kind of what that means for them and, and what that means for him and, and kind of like what he's what he's hanging his hat on. Um, right. And, and he, you know, he goes on to say um, later on that, you know, he has done all of this, um, you know, in love and that, you know, he's not caused uh, them to stumble and, you know, he's coming to them with, you know, open uh our heart is wide open uh to them and all that but you know he what he's hanging his, his hat on is um and, and in his work uh with this church is on his endurance his afflictions his hardships all the things that we see here and how he's kept himself uh pure uh you know uh, through the holy spirit um and you know he's really like giving an account uh really of you know what it is really that you know he's what he's done that um, kind of is speaking for itself in terms of him having the Holy Spirit, the things that he's been teaching um, and, you know, kind of his call to, to them to also um, live in this same way uh, so that they too may not um, cause someone else, be an obstacle in someone else's way. Um, and so that no fault uh, can be found in, you know, in their ministry as well. There can be kind of this continuation of, of the gospel spreading. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Before you get into verse four, I want to add to that. So I was just kind of, you could say highly theological talking about Isaiah. I want to get highly missional, highly practical here. And that's talking about putting this obstacle. So does it mean that it's in requirement and it, people are being disobedient if they don't suffer all these things for the gospel or if they don't, like if, if you don't do these things, are you being disobedient? No, but Paul's saying the up, the thing of utmost importance that we're all called to is to get the gospel to people that haven't heard it, to get the gospel to other people so that they might come to faith in Jesus. And so what does he do? He says as a result that he's not going to put an obstacle in the way. And so it doesn't matter if something's lawful for us or not lawful. It doesn't matter if, if, if it's something that we're able to do. If it's something that's going to impede the mission of getting the gospel to people that don't know Jesus, then that's something that we need to take into consideration when we're doing things. So you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which is in his earlier letter to Corinth, but he's talking about how there's Jews and there's Gentiles and he appeals to them in different ways and and so that he might save some, that he gives up his rights so that they might know the gospel. And so we need to do the same thing. And so I know Andre's going to talk about verses four through 10 kind of as a unit, but before that, we have to realize that we're giving up our own rights and may or may not be required of us by the scripture so that we can get the gospel to other people. That's really good. And no, I didn't really have, you know, too much more about four through uh, four through 10. Like you said, I think we can kind of view these all uh, together, maybe like uh, in, in kind of by parts. Um, like you said, you know, he's not saying that you have to endure all these things. Um, we kind of already, you know, you, you touched on that. And, and yes, um, if, uh, you know, there's some calling that would require one of these things, uh, then, then yes, walking in, into that um, in love is kind of what, what Paul is talking about here. And then, you know, he also says um, he hits on some other things that uh, kind of go uh, towards, um, you know, the, the having good fruit, having living by the Holy Spirit, uh, treating others with love, the things that we've talked about in the previous chapters, um, he's hitting on those as well. And the reason why I kind of, why we kind of say uh, talking about these um, more so as a unit, uh, we really wanted to get into this latter part here um, where towards the end of verse eight, um, Paul begins to kind of make these, I don't know, are they juxtapositions? I'm not really sure the, the proper term for them, but they, they're kind of these, uh, he's kind of saying like, you know, we're thought to be this yet, you know, we're actually that looking at the second part of verse eight, you know, where he says treated as imposters yet are true. Um, later on, uh, he says, uh, seen as poor yet making many rich thinking through some of these kinds of ideas. Uh, the one who that stuck out to me the most is, um, talking about how, you know, he himself is in the state of, of poverty, uh, seen as not, you know, having many things of, of this world, definitely like suffering because of all these things, you know, relying upon uh, the churches he's planted, you know, to, pro- to provide for him financially. But he's saying, yet making money rich, not really talking monetarily, but talking, you know, rich with the spirit, rich with, you know, yeah. the salvation that he has uh, now made known to them, you know, providing them with this opportunity to know who uh, Christ is, know the gospel um, and talking about rich in that sense. I think that one definitely stuck out to me the most, but that later half of that four through 10 section um, where Paul kind of makes uh, shows these distinct differences in, in how the world perceives him, how the world perceives the church, how the world perceives um, Christians and, and kind of what is um, the reality, what uh, Paul knows to be true and what he is now expressing in this letter 
um, for all of us to see and, and to read to know and to know it to be true, uh, I think is 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 really awesome. Yeah, that's good. Just uh, two things. I think one thing that's interesting, you're talking about suffering is, I mean, you look at the the first few verses, so verses four and five, he's talking about in great endurance, afflictions, hardships, beatings, riots, sleepless nights, hunger. I mean, you think about, we talked about in the very first episode of the season, how people in Corinth, lots of materialism, lots of middle-class people looking at success in the world as something that could justify or, um, you know, vindicate or show that your ministry is right. And so some people might even disqualify Paul on account of the things he's endured. And those are the things that he finds noteworthy about his ministry. So that's, that's the first thing. And that the second thing is just like you were saying, I kind of, uh, Garland and his commentary talked about, I connected back to verse, or he connected it back to chapter four. And that was interesting. Cause at the end of chapter four, you have this thing, like we don't look to the things that are transient, but to the things that are eternal, not the things that are passing away, but uh, these eternal, these eternal realities, same thing here. He's in the, in the, the present, clay, man. right back to the jars of clay in the present. He is as, as somebody who is the jar, who's carrying that greater treasure, he is poor, but the eternal reality is that he's looking beyond that because he knows that he's making people rich for eternity in Jesus. And so kind of like Garland's connection back chapter four, and just wanted to point that out about how other people would disqualify Paul's ministry on account of his suffering. But he sees that as evidence that the spirit is working through it. As we're going to see at the end of the book or near the end of the book, when he quotes Jesus saying, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, one of the most famous verses, if not the most famous from this, this entire book of the Bible. So that's all I got on four through 10. I thought you summed it up really well. Thanks, man. And kind of, you know, this last paragraph 11 uh, through 13 kind of really takes us into uh, definitely what stuck out to me the most uh, for sure. And I think what uh, is definitely like the sticking point of this whole chapter, but um, where Paul says, uh, you are not restricted to us, but you're restricted to your, uh, in your own affections. Um, and kind of uh, making the point here that um, what's really like holding um, the Corinthians back, what really holds a lot of us back is is really like our affections to things of this world and he makes you know the big example and, and we'll get into this if you want now um if you don't have anything else on 11 through through 13 uh, here in a second but kind of that you know big verse in, in um in verse 14 do not be unequally to unbelievers and i think that's really good but then also thinking about you know where paul says your own affections you know he's also and he makes the point here that um you know, this just isn't just um, being yoked with unbelievers, but, you know, when you yoke yourself to like, he, he talks about, uh, you know, idols and, um, you know, rituals and, um, you know, other things that, um, that just don't align yourself with Christ. And he's talking about, you know, those affections to those things. Um, he's saying, you know, that's what's restricting uh, the Corinthians. That's what restricts us um, is those, is those uh, affections. That's good. And I want to, so verse 11 through 13, verses 11 through 13, Paul's, you know, essentially saying like, we've opened up our, we've opened up our hearts to you. We've spoken the truth freely to you, but I like how you're getting into verse 14. Can we just jump into that section? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. So the first thing I just want to say is that this verse is not rampantly misinterpreted, but rampantly limited in application because yeah, that's people- definitely, definitely what I was trying to go for. Uh, in, in my like initial explanations that it's not just limited to that, but it's, it's, he's talking about way more than that here. Yes. So what we're both kind of alluding to is people will quote, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And they do actually, I, I'll go as far as saying misinterpret, but people basically apply this to marriage or dating relationships. And so they'll say, don't be unequally yoked. Well, the problem with the, are you going to say, you do want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, while definitely still super, super important to dating relationships and, and marriage. Yes, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So where I, so I want to say two things where it's misinterpreted and where it's limited. So where it's misinterpreted is people say, don't date somebody that's not equally yoked. Okay. This verse has nothing to do with Christians who are pursuing Jesus at a different like level of passion than you are. This is completely a comparison between people who have trusted in Jesus, who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, who are actual Christians, new creations, and people who are not even in the kingdom of God, people who have not turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. It's a complete comparison between unbelievers and believers. So to say, now, should you be dating or marrying somebody who is following Jesus as much as you are? 100%. It's just that it's a misapplication to say that this verse is a support for that because it's not comparing two Christians. It's comparing a Christian and a non-Christian. And then where it's limited in application is the fact that it's applied specifically to marriage, which this is where it is properly applied though, is it said, don't marry unbelievers. Well, that's hundred percent true. You shouldn't be yoking yourself or marrying unbelievers, but it's not just about marriage. Like Andre is saying, he's talking more, he's actually talking more about probably like idol worship and involvement with uh, different food sacrifices and stuff like that than he's even concerned about marriage. But again, the principle can still apply to marriage, but that's where I'd say it's limited in application. And I, the commentary I was reading, reading out of, um, you know, verse 15, the second part, I guess 15b, as I think, uh, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What he's really getting at here is that this church, on top of some of the the other things that, you know, they were dealing with uh, when it came to just, you know, their own church establishment. You know, we talked about when there was a believer who who sinned against the church, who was taken out and 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 Paul talks about, you know, bringing him back into the fold, right? Aside from all those things. The, even even like the the church itself from the problems it has from within right a lot of them are also going out and um you know we know that um corinth uh in a place where you know other religions were were abounding where they're all where they're all at and the, the commentary i was talking about was reading in uh, not talking about the commentary i was reading in um was talking about how many of these other religions that uh, to which they were exposed had uh these feasts these rituals these um uh, food, uh, potentially, you, you know, you could potentially think of it as, as free food, you know, um, some other religion, uh, uh, you know, Islam, Hinduism, or something has some event, they have food, and then these believers are going and in partaking in that food, but they're also yes. partaking in some of the rituals are partaking in mm-hmm. some of the worship to these idols, to these um, idols for these other gods and partaking in all these other things um, that is not leaving them in this place where they're set apart um and, you know, Paul is kind of reminding them of that of, of that here, saying um, that, you know, believers are to be set apart, uh, not to be partaking in, in these other rituals and, and all the song and dance that might accompany um, other uh, religions, other practices, even if it's just for um, a free bite to eat is, you know, he's, he's going as far as to say that. Yeah, that's good. And I don't want to, we're not going to spend the time on this episode, like walking through like where else this would be. But if you want to start like thinking about how Paul's talking about food offered to idols and stuff, first Corinthians eight is an entire chapter devoted to that and their consciences related to that. Um, but no, man, that was really good. Lighter question. Just before we continue going, Andre, what do you hate doing on this podcast? What makes you uncomfortable? What, uh, pronouncing the names of things I would say. Right. So we're I just going to do that for <laughs> 
Yep, exactly. We're going to do that real quick in 15A. What accord has Christ with so-and-so? Belial, I think. Belial, good. And so Belial is actually referenced to the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. So a couple episodes, a couple Mondays, two weeks ago from when this comes out. And Belial is Satan, the God of this world. It was an uh, between the Old and the New Testaments. It was like a Jewish term for Satan or the, the devil, the serpent, however you, you want to identify our adversary. And so what accord has Christ with Belial? If you have trouble remembering how it's not Belial or something else, uh, who's Satan? Satan's the father of lies, according to Jesus. So lie, Belial. Uh, Belial. I don't know if that's clever or not. Came to me right now, but that's our little pronunciation time in this episode. But good job, we got it. Nice, nice. And I know you have some uh, connections to make some other books of the Bible here with this last um, section, sixteen, latter part of sixteen uh, to the end. So let's you kick that off. I don't have as much on this section, but uh, I'll give comments along the way if I have any. Yeah, so this is kind of a tricky section. So in in verse 16 through 18, he begins to pull from Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, and Ezekiel. But no numbers, okay. <laughs> What's wrong with numbers? You didn't you didn't uh include it in the list, but you had everything else from from up there at the beginning of the Bible. I didn't have Genesis. Except Genesis, but yeah. <laughs> okay so i had three of the first five okay yep so like i said second samuel deuteronomy leviticus ezekiel uh, and exodus if i didn't already say that so he's combining a bunch of different verses and uh so what he's doing and we could look at leviticus 26 11 through 12 which is where he's going we could look at exodus 29 45 where god says i'm gonna dwell among my people that's in the context of them making the tabernacle and these are great truths but God is or God, the Holy Spirit through Paul is combining all these because we have to con- we have to consider the context of verse 16. How does verse 16 begin? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he's this is the same comparison as chapter uh, not chapter as verse 14 that the the what is of the believers, this new creation kingdom cannot be in allegiance or yoke with this uh, with the kingdom of darkness, with, with what Satan and what the beast is up to, to think about it in terms of revelation. And so when we have that dichotomy, that those two separate kingdoms, they can't be, you can't have allegiance to both of them. And so he's pulling these verses saying, God is dwelling among us. The people of God now are the temple of God. And so as a result of that, this is a distinct identity for God's people in Exodus uh, I remember just, just recently uh, discipling somebody through Exodus. And after the golden calf incident, God says he's going to send Moses on and he's going to uh, send him to the promised land and he's going to send the people to the promised land, but he's not going to go with them lest he consume them. And Moses says, I'm paraphrasing, but Moses says, if you don't go with us, what's going to make us distinct from the nations? Your presence makes us distinct. And so the fact that God's people are called to holiness and the fact that God's people are called to be marked by his presence is what sets them apart. And the fact that we're in God's presence, what is God first and foremost? I mean, we can discuss the attributes, but God's holy. It's his godness. It's his uniqueness. And if we're to be holy too, we're to be set apart. So we can't have allegiance to idols, to to false worship, to things that are not in alignment with the cross and the resurrection. And so what marks the people of God is the presence of God. And he's calling them away from idol worship and uh, false theology and into a love of Jesus that uh, leads to proper alignment in life uh, in respect to love of God, worship of God, and right relationship with believers in the church. 
I hope that summed up. I'm not trying to go back to all five Old Testament references, but I hope I tried to summarize it in a way that made a little bit of sense. No, what I really like about this is more so um, how really how relational it is. Um, you know, you know, I will make my dwelling among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Um, I will welcome, be a father. Uh, you shall be sons and daughters. I like, like the, the very like relational, um, you know, speak here, I think is like re- really, really good. And especially how you said that, um, and, and, you know, in light of how, how you're talking about how, you know, how we treat others, um, this gospel of, of uh, reconciliation, you know, treating others with love, the things that we've seen, kind of how, how Paul is calling them to um, treat each other, to treat him, uh, to um, appreciate and, and value and be set apart um, uh, for, uh, for God and, and as Christians and, and kind of how that all goes and ties together to how he's, you know, calling back to, like Michael said, um, quoting back and, and calling back to um, the Old Testament and seeing how this is all, you know, tied together and um, really mirrors, you know, this relationship um, between believers and God. And, and, I th- and that's kind of what I uh, really pulled out, out of that. Um, but I have nothing really else on uh, this chapter. If, if you have anything else, I don't know. I just want to say one thing. I think a lot of people get intimidated or don't understand why Paul couldn't just make it easy, not quote from five to six different Old Testament verses uh, to, to make a point. And I just want to say Paul's context, he grew up in the Pharisaical tradition of Judaism, and he, he felt that God was bringing his was bringing back the kingdom through obedience to the Torah and through dwelling in the temple. And that this Torah, this old Testament was some sort of like temple like thing as NT Wright talks about this temple in their midst that they could know God through. And so when he sees that the promises of God are being fulfilled, the strongest way for him to communicate those things is through saying, Hey, what God has promised is what he is doing right now amongst you. What God has promised, all those things have found their yes and amen in Christ, as he says in the first chapter. And so he's showing God's faithfulness to his word, and he's showing that God is accomplishing uh, things in their midst that they can know God had been talking about. And it points to them. It's an, it's an applicable thing. The old Testament to Paul is not some abstract thing that we can't apply today. It's the most applicable thing in his life because he's seeing what God has promised. He's seeing what God has done in the past and how God's continuing that work today and how he's going to continue it into the future. So I just encourage you read the old Testament, know the old Testament and see what God is doing with the old Testament today. Awesome, man. And I have nothing else, but if you haven't checked out, uh, the, rest of the of the chapters we've done on second corinthians check those out um if you haven't if you enjoyed this uh episode on uh second corinthians chapter six and the misconstrued or, or uh you know misinterpreted um verse uh this is the part two of that series because we already had an episode part one of misconstrued verses in a different season so check, check that out too and if you know if you uh, gained anything from this episode send it to a friend Check us out on Instagram at Radical Normal Pod and start getting your Q&A questions ready for the end of the season. We're about halfway done with this season. Yes, so sir. Start thinking about those. Um, but hope you enjoy this episode and, and uh, we'll catch you back next week. Bye.